Hey, everybody. Welcome to Investing in Cannabis. I'm your host, Brandon David. Great show in store for you today. We have Chuck Rafiki, who is a big figure in the Canadian markets. We've got a lot of Canada going on, I see, lately. But he has a PE firm. He's invested in a number of companies, bought some companies. He also has a new product called cannabis streaming which is a really interesting way uh, a better way to finance uh, startups you'll want to check into that you'll want to hear that it's a great episode guys you're going to learn a lot i learned a lot tune in listen up get acquainted Chuck, thanks so much for being on the show. Really nice to have you. I had a chance to look into your background. Lots and lots to discuss. But first of all, just welcome. Thanks for being here. Yeah, pleasure to be here. It seems like Nesta is probably the biggest thing that you do. That's sort of the overarching uh, company. And uh, the first question, I think, as I went to the website, and I think our audience would be really interested, is why decide to do a PE firm versus like straight venture? Yeah, and so you know, it's um, it's not quite a PE firm, and I think it's the quickest and easiest way to describe it. But it's um, you know, we call it uh, a bit of an active, uh, actively managed whole co. And so, you know, it um, it kind of came together organically as as you know, some of the best things do. And in that, I was looking specifically at 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 one area, which was the disposable vape pen market, and wanted to see uh, whether you know acquire or build out a, a company. In that space, and as we were doing that, uh, and uh, you know, brought in my first partner, uh, Manoj, our, our chief uh, investment officer, and, and we were looking at some comps, and we started running across the really great digital media comps in, in the cannabis space, uh, you know, people like Weed Maps and, and Leafly, and ended up running across uh, you know our first acquisition in uh, WikiLeaf, and then we so we ended up with kind of two uh, you know investments or businesses that we wanted to get into, and so it made sense to create. Uh, you know, a, um, a holding company above that to kind of place, um, you know, our resources. And uh, the idea was to uh, take care of the, you know, a lot of the back office um, kind of branding uh, as well as uh, you know, IR and then the investment capital side of the businesses. Uh, and so that's kind of how Nesta, Nesta formed over uh, about a six-month period. Got it. Yeah. It's kind of interesting, maybe just a difference, but uh, it seems like a lot of the Canadian firms are choosing a more sort of PE path as opposed to U.S. seems to be a lot of venture. Uh, first of all, do you agree with that? And, and why do you think that is maybe? Yeah, I think it's, um, you, you know, I, I don't know why it is. Uh, you know, I can only speak to, you know, we, we ended up doing it for, you know, for, for myself, Nesta, it's never, never about, um, you know, from, from a venture fund perspective, we, we always want to stay, you know, very focused on, uh, on a small, number of, of investments or, or properties and, and so it was you know a, kind of the the lens if you will or the, the gate to, to look at whether Nesta might get involved with something and, and obviously this is this is aspirational but it was you know is this does this company or, or, or product or business have the potential to be a, a billion dollar uh, venture and uh, so that certainly you know filters out a lot of uh, very great but but smaller opportunities and you know so our goal at Nesta is we 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 raised a bit of capital, so it wasn't for us. It wasn't a tr traditional fund structure. It wasn't a um, going out to raise a, a lot of capital. M much of the of the portfolio is uh, internally uh, created. So you know, we we the only really have one acquisition, which was our majority ownership of WikiLeaf, but our our the other companies have been 
uh, you know, created by Nest. So it's, you know, it gets really kind of a hybrid, uh, hybrid model. So that, that's how we came to be in you know, Canada. Generally, I think the, um, uh, you know, maybe it has to do with the markets in Canada, the ability to access, uh, you know, I'll, call it, I'll call it quasi institutional capital. Yep. Some of the tier two bankers here, you know, it's a very different dynamic than what, you know, what you're looking at when you're, you're sort of seeking out capital uh, in the U.S. So not PE in the traditional sense that you're really looking to go take over companies, but rather that you've sort of fostered them from the beginning. So how, how does that kind of work? I mean, as opposed to looking for founders that you would invest in, you you look for founders and say, hey, let's start this business together? Yeah. So it's, you know, there it certainly limits the uh, the amount of deals. Uh, you know, in the case of of WikiLeaf, we found a, a great founder who had, you know, been building and really prototyping the business for uh, almost two years, uh, but was at that point looking for outside capital. So we we came in very early stage. So I think that would be, you know, we, we certainly, um, you know, somebody who's just got the, you know, the prototyping done, maybe is ready for that seed round or is just coming out of a friends and family round. And, you know, we certainly want to have a, a lot of control uh, over our typical you know, company, you know, very large majority ownership, but then provide a lot of value, you know, for that with, uh, you know, with a team team that we bring. So I think it's in the case of Weekly, it was ideal because we really complemented the founder that was in place. And then we spent the last, uh, you know, almost two years, uh, you know, we acquired uh, our interest in Weekly in uh, in December of uh, 2015, and we've been building a team around around him. Uh, you know, they're based in Seattle. Uh, and uh, you know, are are just closing a uh, kind of an A an A round there now, and so it's um you know that's how that came together, and that's how a, you know that's how future acquisitions would would come into play, and it's yeah, it's not it's not a typical PE type acquisition, uh, you know, um, that we really want to come in, you know, friendly, um, and you know, really buying into the team that's already in place because we we don't um you know we want we make sure there's you know we want to value the existing structure and supplement it which is coming in and 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 cleaning house it's just uh you know some 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 companies need that we're not looking for those yeah i think what i heard you say is is you meet companies and instead of uh buying a little piece of their company you want to buy it all that's how impressed you are with them <laughs> yeah yeah that's, uh, yeah at the same time you got to keep the existing kind of management and founders motivated so you, you know you have to have a uh, um, you know some 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 material uh, sizable piece left for them uh, but in this case you know, we also brought a lot of capital so it's uh, and and sped the execution so it was really a you know a win-win from that standpoint um, you know going forward it's more I think our default position would be looking at uh, products, markets, or areas where we would just we go and create something ourselves. And so I think when it comes to acquisitions, uh, it, it really has to be um, you know everything kind of coming together where you know we we would um, just want to make sense to, to to start from scratch and we just you know kind of have to. It's almost like an aqua hire with IP. You know, it, it really is kind of an aqua hire in, in that perspective. Got it. Um, and the you know you really need. Um, because these are really individual properties, you know, we have, uh, you know, my partners at Nesta, obviously each partner is kind of focused on one, you know, primarily on one particular, uh, you know, venture, you know, you do need that solid, that solid founding team to, um, you know, really be, be carrying the ball. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me uh, a little bit about the portfolio. You mentioned WikiLeaf. What was, uh, what was compelling about WikiLeaf? Well, for WikiLeaf was that, you know, the, 
the price exploration, which we saw that um, at the time no one else was doing, I think people are starting to to move there now. But you know, where where WeMaps and Leafly would be charging, uh, you know, very significant sums, monthly sums to dispensaries, and you know, thousands of dollars a month, if not tens tens of thousands in certain hot markets like LA, for you know a larger point on a map, but uh, and, and having a dispensary rating, uh, customers weren't really able to see the. You know, they have the transparency of, of the, the price exploration. So, Weekly's been been tackling that. And uh, you know, if you look at other verticals, you know, every you know whether it's travel or hotels, I mean, there's always room for uh, a price a price discovery engine. And so, um, you know, we really liked the uh, kind of the base uh, value prop. Uh, and then it was about building out. At the time that we acquired them, they only had a web based platform, and it's very much a, a mobile. You know, it's, it's a great mobile experience. So. You know, with the bring on iOS and Android native apps, and uh, and now having a plan to start monetizing. You know, we've kind of taken the, the opposite path of of uh, our kind of indirect competitors of instead of monetizing in the back of dispensaries and, and really building uh, and and that being the revenue goal. You know, we we intend to. Uh, you know, we're kind of going far and wide with the the freemium model, uh, making sure we have very large adoption from from dispensaries, and then working on tying in with the point of sale systems uh, in the various uh, markets, so that you're pulling that data in live and um, and monetize uh, on a uh, on a more grassroots level, kind of from the bottom up with with direct value add, whether it be analytics or uh, pushing out uh, deals to to our you know our user base. Uh, and and eventually accessing the capital markets to help fund operations versus doing it on the back of dispensers. And I think that's you know our, our uh, you know kind of going back to Nesta. Our, our plan with each company is to is to access the capital markets. Um, and uh, and so with WikiLeaf, you know, we do have a plan to uh, take it public. Whether you know which market it ends up being on, you know, we're we're closely watching the, the High Times uh, uh, filings for for the Nasdaq uh, junior market. Uh, whether it's OTC or taking it up in, in Canada on the yep. On the CSC, you know, there's, there's certain options, uh, but that's always kind of the the goal, uh, and so we can really build time and, and really focus on the user experience versus going kind of we think you know versus short circuiting to to monetization. Yeah, you mentioned the indirect competitors, which there are a lot of them, and and some big names in the industry. I mean, uh, Weed Weed Maps, Leafly. How do you compete? I, I get that you know you're you're basically trying to finance it a little differently by not requiring the dispensaries to to pay into it basically but how do you compete for eyeballs you know how do you compete for consumers why why would they would they try WikiLeaf? yeah so i think it's you know we do have a, a strained database uh and you know so there is there is kind of uh product exploration i mean the, the best use case i think it's really the use case customers you know if you you if you anybody with you know if you pull up our app in a you know in the u.s market let's say you know uh, uh with uh, with you know with legal cannabis uh then you can pick a strain and then say find nearby and see the pricing for that particular product uh near you and that's really you know again no one else is uh i don't think anybody else is doing that or at least doing it uh, effectively like we are today and and um it's been it's really resonated with with uh, with customers and we've seen it in our traffic so when we acquired you know the traffic growth since uh, we've gotten involved. We leaves up, uh, you know, well over, um, you know, three thousand percent, and uh, it used to be a, a fraction of uh, of Weed Maps and Leafly. And I think, um, you know, today, um, you know, our our traffic is, you know, very shortly going to, I think, going to pass Weed Maps, and uh, you know, we're probably uh, probably getting close to half of, of Leafly's traffic. So we've made some great progress, and I think there are a lot of other, um, um, you know, a lot of other 
kind of digital dispensary product um, you know, you know, companies out there. Uh, but I think we're kind of in a in a tier two kind of class of our own, and, and kind of really going after those those large incumbents with the um, you know with the traffic and, and kind of adoption we've had. So it's a lot of it's really been organic, and I think um, you know Dan Nelson, the, the founder of Weekleaf, is just very very product focused, and um, you know we just keep iterating on on that. Uh, on that vector yeah yeah i just uh i'm just doing it right now i just punched in uh, my zip code in san francisco here and no surprise there's about five thousand options about uh various deliveries and brick and mortar mortar as well so if i click on one of these uh, and then convert um is there any referral fee associated with that or the dispensary pays for this discovery in in any way no not right now so we're looking at ways to, to monetize that at the same time, you know, making sure that weekly leaf is not seen as touching the plant and kind of staying out of, um, out of, out of that view. And so we're looking at subscription based model, uh, for, for value added services, uh, you know, whether it's again, that increased analytics for dispensers seeing, um, you know, where customers are coming from, uh, as well as, um, you know, be able to push out deals and, um, and we're, so we're, we're building that. It's still that's still very very much in the kind of alpha alpha stage, and uh, our focus right now is making sure that we have um, just wide dispensary adoption. And uh, so I think we're at uh, uh, you know about sixty percent of, of dispensaries uh, in the U.S. on on the platform and wow. uh, and growing. Yeah. And so yeah, so we're going you know we're going we're going kind of bottom up. Uh, on that and uh, you know the, the key really will be you know we just want I, I think the eventual monetization is going to come off the brands off the branded products because you know anybody that is, is trying to get a brand and certainly some of those more uh, robust markets uh, how to differentiate that product uh, you know today you can only search for flour uh, but you know you will be able to add adding additional uh, product types on there and I think there's really an opportunity where brands will want to um, you know want to want to get exposure and I think there's there's a, a much I think a much cleaner monetization path through through brands where dispensers would be more of a, an add-on and just a very high value service but not the core um, over time, I don't think it would be the core uh, value driver for Weekly Leaf. Well, it also creates the uh, potential to, potential to make bigger advertising deals, right? If, you, if you're getting money from individual dispensaries, their reach is only going to be so big as opposed to, you know, if there's a brand that's all over California, for example, uh, they may want to advertise to all of those markets. I'm sure you guys thought that through too. Uh, you mentioned uh, vape pens, and that's one of the ways that you got into another very, very crowded space, uh, but a lucrative one, certainly. Uh, I have a note about feather.co. Is that eventually what that interest uh, turned into? Feather.co. Yes, that's right. And yes, yeah, so for, you know, for me, I, I think it's, I'm really passionate about about that product type. I think being the, um, certainly the, uh, you know, the future of, of consumption for a lot of mainstream consumers, mm-hmm. uh, you know, moving over from, you know, into, into a legal market. And uh, the, you know, we really felt that there's, um, there was a bit of a gap in there. There are, you know, obviously there's a lot of disposable pens today. I mean, you know, two years ago, uh, you know, far, far fewer uh, when we started, to, uh, you know, kind of thinking about this, um, what we want to do with, with Feather. But there's also a lot of cartridge pens and larger pens, obviously the refillable side. But, you know, it was really coming up with a premium disposable experience um, that, you know, had all the uh, ease of use. 
uh, of a disposable with the, but with the quality and, and kind of the um, just just the good taste and 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 uh, an experience that you'd expect from a, a more robust uh, kind of rechargeable pen. And I think it really you know it comes down to proprietary hardware as well as you know everybody has proprietary extraction mm-hmm. uh, you know method. Uh, but we've been uh, you know iterating that for you know doing the R and D in Canada and and we have the the hardware locked down now and and the uh, and the process locked down. And so we're working on. Uh, you know, license that out to uh, uh, you know expect that to launch soon in, in Colorado with uh, through a partner there, and of course we're getting ready for the the Canadian market, if and when it becomes legal uh, to actually produce uh, uh, vape pens because you know today there is a, uh, a thirty milligram per milliliter THC limit, which severely you know you can only produce really CBD pens, and mm-hmm. uh, there's some other issues you can't really have a carrier of any type you can't add terpenes it's mm-hmm. very very restrictive in Canada so nobody is making le- federally legal vape pens today in Canada there's obviously a lot of them in the in the gray market so we're we're getting ready for full blown legalization here when it comes to to the feather. Very interesting how they pick and choose sort of regulations, both Canada and the U.S. <laughs> I mean, no terpenes, like terpenes certainly aren't going to hurt anybody, you know, it, interesting that they would leave that out. Uh, so you said premium disposable. Walk me through sort of that thought process a little bit. I, I get that it's a better uh, better experience than a traditional disposable, um, but why not just have something more permanent, you know, a, a more expensive battery, something that, that lasts a long time? Yeah, I think it comes from you know, the experience that I see with with um, I'll call them kind of uh, you know non-heavy consumers or whatever rate you know call them uh, um, uh, light consumers of the product or new consumers who you know when you have to have a charger uh, you know battery component it just starts becoming it becomes more like gear and less of a I think less of a lifestyle device when you have kind of all you know again you have to have you have to kind of buy into this whole. Um, even though it's only a few pieces, um, it adds complication, the on off button, you know, the charging, et cetera, where with, uh, you know, disposable vape pens, I think the ease of use, somebody just taking a drag off of it, the, the, you know, the instant on, um, and the size for discretion, I think there are a lot of attributes that I think would appeal to people who are new to cannabis. Um, and, and also just obviously the, the, the category itself, you know, with microdosing, you know, it's hard to have a bad experience with a vape pen. Mm-hmm. Um, you really have to try. Uh, Agreed, and so, yeah. you know, it's, I, I think when you combine that together, um, I think, again, I think it's a product that will have a, a largest market and, you know, it's the kind of thing that, uh, it's just easy to have, you know, one in your pocket, one at home, you know, one, one at the, uh, you know, the officer or wherever you might, might happen to consume. Um, whereas I think with, you know, eventually there could be a cartridge version and then, you know, that's certainly something that's on, on a potential roadmap, but I think it's a, it's just a very different user experience. And, and my sense is that people don't, don't use the disposables because I think a lot of them just don't, just not very good. I mean, they have to call it the hardware, they, they break down and, and it's, you know, a lot of them, a lot of them just don't, you know, they're just not a good experience. We have a long way to go in, in vape technology. I use vapes mostly because they're convenient. I have one in my pocket most of the time, but I, I prefer flowers when I can get them. Uh, but the, explain a little bit. Um, I'm sure the price point isn't out. It's not released in Colorado yet. But how does doing a premium disposable uh, affect the unit economics as opposed to just cartridges? I would imagine it's more expensive in terms of cost, but you also can charge more for it. Can you, can you talk about kind of that analysis a little bit? Yes, yeah, so and we've, uh, you know, we, we looked at uh, we work with VS Analytics, uh, you know, great company that that provides all the all the retail pricing, mm-hmm. uh, the different products. So, you know, the product is uh, we're looking at 
at, at designing it so that we can certainly fit within the market range, uh, certainly not the low end. And, you know, at, at the end of the day, it, it adds, um, you know, the unit cost of the hardware is, is slightly higher. I mean, without getting the specifics, you know, things like a, uh, having a, you know, quartz glass oil canister, um, you know, uh, Swiss made, uh, you know, coil and just having some of the key components being of high quality and, uh, you know, I think that it has both an aesthetic and a feel component to it. I mean, it's a you know, it's a it's an aluminum uh, you know sleeve, so it just feels um, uh, it feels like a high end product, but not so much that you'd feel bad disposing of it. And and I can already hear you know certain people uh, you know there's obviously a bit of a uh, on the recycling side you know that that's always an issue with disposable vape pens. But if you if you are going to use a disposable, I think you you want to um, you know you are ingesting this product, and so I think there's there's just um, you know the tactile uh, aspect uh, and visually having a glass canister. You know the oil doesn't stick to it. You can actually see the levels go down. I think that's really the biggest complaint people have with vape pens. Is, you know I can't you can't tell when it's run out or it looks like there's still oil left there and it's not functioning. And so we really the team has really worked hard on on making sure that you know when you get the pen it looks full and it runs out when the oil looks like it's ran out and you know, the other viscosity and, and you can just um, get that clarity of the product you're using. Um, that, uh, you know, although it's not necessarily, you can make a great vape pen, have a great experience without having that, the, the visual cues, but I think those visual cues will give people comfort. And ultimately when it comes to kind of a branded product play, you know, how something looks and, and feels is important. Got it. Yeah. Very interesting to kind of get your thoughts on, on why that's a great deal. Um, um tell me a little bit about, about what success looks like. I mean, you're going to launch in Colorado soon. Is there a certain number or certain metric that, that you look for, for a successful launch? Yeah, I think, you know, success, um, I think for, for feather is, is, uh, multi-state sales. Uh, you know, everybody, a lot of people talk about having a, a true national or, or international brand, uh, a product, uh, for a product in cannabis. And I think, um, you know, there are a few companies, you know, some, some are doing it, but, uh, you know, having adoption, you know, the, the, the team selected Denver as, as a launching point. Um, you know, it's not the easiest, you know, so it's a pretty, um, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of competition there. It's a tough market, but the idea being that, the, you know, setting the bar high out of the gates, that if you can, if you can disrupt in, in that market, that becomes a calling card for, for, for other areas. Cause you have very discerning customers, uh, particularly bud tenders and, and, you know, in large part, the gatekeepers for new products, uh, you need the products that can have, you know, that they'll actually recommend. And so uh, that's really going to be the first and, and kind of most important test uh, for Feather is when our, when our partner puts it into their distribution uh, and seeing the feedback. And so, you know, early, um, early indications we think um, from, from uh, heavy cannabis users uh, and, and regular pe heavy pen users is, is very positive, but you know, that's really, um, that's why we chose, chose Denver. And I think having some success there, uh, as well as um, uh, again, the product to a second state, then you get to really, I think, starting to leverage um, that uh, you know a broader, broader use, and that pulls into obviously as as the the as the markets evolve and advertising, you know, it gets more of a national, um, you know, national advertising plan to help kind of really build 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 that brand because I think you know ultimately as you know when prohibition of cannabis eventually ends in, in the U.S. and as it ends in other countries, uh, I think only brands will survive. You know, you could have a great widget, you know, somebody does always a better oil or you know better hardware, but you know people ultimately are, are going to have a, an allegiance to to brands. And so how do you build that early? Yep. And you build it with consistency. Uh, and so you know I think um, you know we're really the formula is, is such that uh, you know we want it to you know have the same profile. 
same same taste uh, no matter you know which state you, you buy it in you know where and that's really been from the day one is how do how do we make sure that it's a repeatable repeatable process and that and that we have you know through our partners some some, some kind of contractual control over the, the quality of that oil because you know it's an analogy of it's almost like having a bottler on the coca-cola side you know if you're if your bottle of coke tasted different in different areas yeah, it'd be a bad experience i think yeah. today or going into a Marriott, you know, if you walk into a McDonald's or a Starbucks, you, it's consistency. You know what you're going to get. You know what you're going to get, which also That's makes right, sense yeah. that you, so would the, start, you would start in Canada or not Canada, but rather in Colorado, the consistency of the oil just as a result of the market being that much more established than in California or something much more consistent. Is that what, is that what you found as well? Yeah. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. And it's, uh, I think because the customers demand it, right? It's a very mature, it's the most mature market I think in, in the world, uh, yeah. for, for cannabis consumers. Um, and yeah, so and, and we we try to get that consistency through, you know, um, you know, we do introduce terpenes and not to override the taste, but to have a bit of a, you know, a feather, uh, you know, a feather taste um, that that can be, you know, subtle, but where people can start associating that taste to the brand, uh, you know, re- regardless of what the underlying strain is, you know, for for an indica tea or a hybrid uh, Got pen. Got it. Yeah, I want to try it. I'm looking forward to getting my hands on one. That sounds interesting to me. Uh, let's talk about a couple other things that you work on here. We haven't talked about cannabis Wheaton at all yet. Um, and I thought that I was up on all the new terminology and, and one of the cool kids, but I had not heard of cannabis streaming before. Uh, and when you're not talking about media streaming here, can you explain a little bit about what you mean by cannabis streaming? Yeah, certainly, and most people had not heard of streaming prior as well. And you know, I, I didn't know what, what streaming in, in this sense was a year ago. But it's um, streaming is something that is uh, well known in the mining sector, and you know because a lot of um, you know most a lot of the capital uh, you know, in Canada is raised uh, you know in the Canadian financial markets, uh, and Canadian financial markets are very resource heavy. Uh, you know most uh, people in the and financial business know of, of streaming and in particular there's a couple famous companies one one called the uh, silver wheaton which was uh you know it's a 10 billion dollar company that does uh, streaming and, and what streaming in the mining sector does is uh you know it's typically um you know like like kind of cannabis producers in some cases it can be a hard to access capital to build that initial facility and so somebody finds a mine they, they have trouble getting capital. It's in a down market, and a company will come in and stream it, where they'll provide capital at a great rate. But in exchange for that great rate, they'll take a they'll have a right to purchase a, a part of the output of that mine at at a very low cost. And so, that's kind of where the analogy ends. But we, you know, um, you know, the the team thought about how, you know, how, how could you apply that for cannabis? Uh, where you know, in Canada. A lot of money is raised here, and I find out, you know, being at conferences in the U.S., you talk about companies here raising fifty million, seventy-five million, you know, um, in, in kind of these bot deals, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, some, some some nice large kind of chunks. But those those are the top, really. There's very few companies that are raising that level of capital, and then you have, you know, we're we're over fifty licensees in Canada now, and as new licensees come forward, there's kind of this gap in the market that we found where. Uh, when a company doesn't have their license yet, but they're ready to build a facility, um, and now they have to get that initial capital, or they have to do that first large expansion, um, there, there was just kind of a gap and a high cost of capital. So, so enter Cannabis Wheaton. Uh, you know what we do is provide you know, that capital to build that initial expansion or first facility, and in exchange for that, 
we do take some equity, but much less than they would they would give up otherwise. And then we have the right to buy, you know, let's say roughly a third, depends on the deal, but let's say, you know, a percentage of the output of that facility at the direct cost to produce it. Um, and so what, what Cannabis Wheaton does is we, you know, we lock down future product streams going into a supply constrained environment. Uh, but what our partners get is not only kind of the good capital, um, and you know they give up some short-term economics on on the stream, but they get they get our team, and so you know we're building out a team of kind of industry experts and in, in all the primary risk verticals, you know, like cultivation, facility construction, regulatory, legal, and so you know they get the capital, uh, and, and then they get a partner to help them get through that you know very high risk initial or, or build or first large large expansion and you know the, the joke i was make is you know weed weed is called weed because it grows easily but to grow it well is, is difficult and i know you know every cultivator has gone gone through that and so true story yeah it's easy yeah. to grow and hard to grow well that's that's really that's right. what, I, what i found all over the place very interesting so you're almost like purchasing a warrant for future products like that that's sort of the yeah i mean our, our typical our typical deal is they're, they're 10 to 99 year agreements you can't have a perpetual agreement in canada so you know uh they're, they're either 10 or 99 years and so we put capital in and then you know it, it takes you know let's say a year and a half to two years for you know for that stream to really to really come to, to large fruition and then uh we we have the right to to buy that product at, at a fixed price so it's uh it, it's very interesting and then we end up with a platform uh you know as we as we, we plan to execute on, on on the 15 partners that we've currently signed up in in six provinces across the country and so you then have a diversification of uh cultivation types genetic types teams and you know we don't really know what the legal market's gonna gonna look like as far as types of products that are gonna be allowed. And so kind of our regulator is gonna kinda unlock shelf space as they say, okay, now you can make vape pens, now you can make edibles, uh, tinctures, et cetera. And so you need you need different product mix for that. And so, you know, we get to kind of double down on the partners who are, you know, better at growing low cost inputs or better growing high, you know, top shelf cannabis and right. um, it creates a lot of port flexibility and you get the portfolio effect of spreading those investments across multiple producers. Got it. Which may lead itself nicely into a conversation about Tokyo Smoke. Uh, our, our audience is pretty familiar with it, but is that, is that basically the idea? I know Tokyo Smoke doesn't sell cannabis today, um, but this is... Uh, you would think that they would, and I'm sure you think that they they will eventually. Is that the idea? Is basically to funnel these products into Tokyo Smoke when when the time is right? Yeah. So for Tokyo Smoke, uh, you know, I'm uh, I'm personally an investor in Tokyo Smoke, and, and we have a, a partnership with them for some brand licensing. But going back to Tokyo Smoke, yeah, they're very much you know they're building a cannabis brand, uh, but within the confines of the Canadian rules around advertising cannabis, and so you know it's really it's coffee clothing cannabis. And uh, so today, uh, actually, just there's one of their their first shop is just a, a, a couple minutes walk from where, where I'm sitting today here mm -hmm. uh, in Toronto. And you, uh, from the outside, it looks like a coffee shop. Once you get a few feet into the, so that's very accepting for the neighborhood. Once you get a little further in, it's more of a more of a head shop. But then they have a licensing deal with uh, with uh, Afria, uh, you know, a large producers mm -hmm. here, uh, to white label the product, uh, and, and Afria gets to tap into that, you know, the, the coolness and, and and kind of the brand that they built. And so the stores, in some way, are, are advertising cannabis without advertising it. You know, you really can only get people to know yeah. the brand and associate with it. So it's a very, uh, it's a very you know ingenious way to um, to work within within the rule set. Uh, they would certainly love to become dispensaries. Um, uh, you know, we'll, each province in Canada is going to have their own sets of rules like we have for alcohol here. Mm -hmm. And just recently, uh, uh, a few days 
uh, late last week, the government announced in Ontario uh, plans to have government-controlled uh, distribution and and retail, and so that would that would kind of nix the short-term plans for for Tokyo Smoke to retail here. But it still you know uh, it still doesn't change the the plan for them because they do have the the white label licensing, and their product could end up on those government shelves. So it, you know, we're when it comes to distribution and retail in Canada, we're just starting to see. The policy turned into into proposals, and um, you know it's very feverish on the on the analysis, and you know who wins, who loses, how's the landscape change? It's still it's still early days, but you know if, if an investor had to make a bet, just look at what a province is doing on the alcohol side, and you know you're not gonna you're not gonna go wrong if you just assume that they do the exact same thing for cannabis, and you'll be right most of the time. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, yeah, that, that kind of leads into the next one. You're, you're good at this, man. You're, you're going through the outline here. National <laughs> National Access Cannabis, the chairman of the board. That sounds like a big role. That sounds like a, a lot of work. How do you do that and all this other stuff? Yeah, so I mean, certainly, um, you know, there's a lot of opportunity in this business. And I, I learned, I've learned to say no to a lot of things. Yet, you know, yeses do kind of come through and yeah, national access was my my first actual investment in, in the cannabis space outside of of tweed and, and canopy after uh, after parting ways there and uh with national access it actually is a bet on on regulated uh, retail and so today national access is a clinic help people get their uh, their acmpr or their their, their regulated uh, prescription to be able to order from licensed producers in canada and it's still hard you know to get physicians your average doc to to to, to agree to that and so there's a, there's other specialized clinics like national access cannabis that, that do that but the plan is is building out uh you know that, that clinic and customer base uh and brick and mortar clinics that hope to become regulated dispensaries and so uh, you know, you're going to win some provinces and lose others. And there's also two tracks. There's, there's recreational, uh, and then there will eventually be pharmacies. And then, so the open question is, will there be specialized cannabis only pharmacies or, or just regular pharmacies, uh, that will be, you know, dispensing medically. And so there's a few avenues for them and they just started trading on the TSX venture, uh, last week under the symbol NAC. So, so that's exciting. And so, you know, going back to your question on timing, uh, the uh, you know I'm a significant investor there and um, and, and just that, that turned into a, a chairmanship uh, really before um, any of the Nesta and Cannabis Wheaton properties took off so it's um, you know my, my role is certainly it's a it's a board only role it's not operational so uh, I'm able to, to, to squeeze it in uh, but it's um, uh, for that for that one it's very much a uh, uh, it's going to be a huge win or, or the clinic business is a great business on its own, but it's, uh, it, it's really my interest in, in retail because I think there's going to be more value created in retail in Canada than we saw created on the production side, just like in, you know, in, in, in Colorado, I mean, dispensaries do, do very well. Uh, but it's, uh, it's a weird business because none of the rules are set yet. So it, it's, um, it's very fluid even for cannabis. Yeah, absolutely. Um, looking forward, you kind of talked about what what a mature market might look like in terms of retail. Uh, take me through kind of your your thesis a little bit. What you're looking for, you know, trends that that get you excited. Well, you know, looking forward, it's um, I mean, uh, Canada or, or, or generally. Uh, all of the above. I mean, you play in both worlds, so I, I guess sure. you know when you wake up in the morning, where where do you want to put money? Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly want to put money into 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 products products is, is kind of the what i'm most passionate about and and but products need need supply and so you know my 
my main focus today is is really Cannabis Sweden, and so you know, obviously, as uh, I'm CEO of and chairman of, of Cannabis Sweden, and it's um, you know, it's the most valuable uh, investment for Nesta, and so that's that's kind of the you know the uh, the alignment there. Nesta, you know, Nesta ultimately is a, is a is a very large shareholder of Cannabis Sweden, and you know, in a at the end of the day, you can have the best products in the world, um, you can have the best dispensary chain in the world in Canada, but if you don't have uh, access to product, uh, you know the producers. I think in the in the very short term are going to have a lot of control and are really going to help shape um, both the um, you know the the flow uh, you know the types of products that hit the shelf as well as you know it, which products get um, become become household names in Canada. So I think you know because of my interest in products that really quickly turned into an interest in making sure I have supply to make those products <laughs> uh, and um, and that kind of ties in with our you know our partnership with Tokyo Smoke between Nest and Tokyo Smoke we we have a, a brand licensing company and we are kind of in the late stages of looking to lock down some of the top US brands with some great US brands for again the Canadian rights and in some cases international rights to those brands because I think a lot of the a lot of the work with the consumers um, in California and Colorado on figure out you know just which products are good which which ones aren't has been done and you know, why reinvent the wheel and so if you combine you know great product ip with with supply in a supply constrained environment then you can basically you know have a great product sitting on the shelf when there are a few products on the shelf it's just a, i think it's a great combination for just building that brand loyalty kind of day one and uh, kind of being part of that first cohort of products so that's really what i think gets me excited is just um Really, the urgency and the race to be able to be in a position to make great products and and put them in front of Canadians early on, and then you know, looking outside of Canada, uh, is really trying to build a, a global a global cannabis company, and 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 that that can take different shapes. And so, you know, we're we're testing in some ways, we're testing the waters in certain areas and, and seeing um, and, and obviously watching the regulatory environment and some of the board as well as other countries, because um, I think. Uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, I don't think the U.S. is going to fully legalize in the next uh, five years, um, but you know, hopefully not ten. But we're seeing, obviously, you know, Australia, Germany, Switzerland, the U.K., uh, uh, you know, South America, lots of interesting stuff happening. And so, um, you know, I think it's, um, I think with products, it's, it's much simpler to export that IP than 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 production or, or, or other types of uh, businesses. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned brand a number of times there. And if you're creating something that's going to be successful internationally, uh, you know, what are, what are the qualities of a brand? You know, what makes a great brand? Well, yeah, it's, um, you know, I, I'd, uh, yeah, I think it's kind of it's the type of thing where you know it when you see it, but I mean, to obviously give you a better answer, I think, I mean, the first, the first thing is to bring in great brand talent. And so, you know, one of my, uh, my partners is uh, Ian Rapsey, who, who was the, the man behind uh, the Tweed brand, uh, which I think has, has done, been very well in Canada, probably the most recognizable brand here. And um, you came from a very, you know, very senior brand design and creative director background. And, you know, we really looked at it as, you know, it, it's really not about a cannabis brand and looking at it more as just a, a general brand. And I think the, where a lot of companies, I think, make mistakes or, uh, or, or slip up is, is taking kind of the short path of, you know, just putting a leaf on something or calling it green or canna. Yeah. And just, you know, it, it's just very, and not really looking at the long term. And, you know, what is this, how will this brand evolve um, over the next uh, five or 10 years uh, or even further? And so, you know, it's less about, um, you know, it's less about being a cannabis brand, it's just being a brand that happens to be a cannabis product. And so I think, you know, starting from kind of that mindset, 
Um, you know, it, it's just about, um, you, you know, obviously just great, having gr- great creative skills. And, and uh, you know, I guess another way to answer it and how I look at it is um, I just try to design products and, and services that I would use myself. And, mm-hmm. and hopefully you're, you know, you're, you're represent, you know, that's, that's the easiest when you happen to be, um, kind of the perhaps the target market for for a product, and so you know, I, I I was not a you know I'm not, I, I didn't come from the cannabis background you know uh, not a I wasn't a cannabis user you know I'm very much a typical I think uh, citizen that uh, you know is an alcohol drinker and as as it legalizes you know looked at cannabis as something to incorporate in and so um, you know again it just it's not it's not rooted in cannabis but you need to you know, I think the bar is unfortunately very low. And so we just try to great, create a great user experience um, without shying away from cannabis. Uh, and I think that's mm-hmm. the other thing. Some people go too clinical. And I find um, yeah. at least early days in Canada, um, people either look like pharmacies or they look like uh, head shops. And, you know, it's for some reason people uh, shied away from the middle ground of just yeah, being there's a medium or something. Yeah, looking, looking like a clothing company or a, or a, or a craft brewer. A craft, you yeah. know, brewer that, I think that's the sweet spot. And People are, are, are now figuring that out. Yeah, well said. Uh, so shifting gears a little bit, we have a, a lot of founders that listen to this show and a lot of soon-to-be founders, people that are thinking about getting into the industry. Uh, you have this very rich finance background. I mean, before you were a, a CEO, you were a CFO for a number of years for a number of different companies. Is there sort of some just classic mistakes, red flags that you see in P&Ls or, or in cap tables or, you know, something from a finance perspective that you see founders kind of make mistakes over and over again? I think, I mean, generally, and certainly not, doesn't come from my, my, my financial background. I think obviously not having enough capital, underestimating the amount of capital you need. I made that mistake uh, many times. You know, fortunately I've, I've, uh, you know, had partners or just been in situations where eventually, you know, we found the capital before, before running out. But um, I think, you know, certainly that's number one and, and choosing, choosing the right partners is probably the, the most important thing to do. Um, you know, just making sure you're filling in the gaps. It's, it's very hard to be a sole founder. And, and I think, yeah. um, I mean, it's, you know, this is a very general entrepreneurial advice, but uh, you know, picking a founder too quick uh, or, um, or just being scared of, of kind of giving up, um, you know, there's, there's some equity up front to, to bring in high quality people. And as, as you go, just, you know, I think your, your first 10 hires, I think really create the culture of your company. And, um, you know, and I've done this in the past, you know, uh, hiring too fast is, is, you know, kind of the number, number two on that list. So, so just the general, the general pieces, but, you know, I think where having a financial background, I think has helped me or, or just my background helped me it came to just more the credibility and hearing people like, uh, you know, um, Viridian, uh, partners talk and other, other capital, um, kind of funders in the cannabis space, the, the number one kind of filter for them is the team. And mm-hmm. so how do you, how do you make yourself as a founder, you know, how do you add credibility versus detract credibility from that experience? And I think it's, there's a lot of different ways to do that. And I think, you know, in my case, it was being someone who had experience being a CFO of a publicly traded company yep. and, and having that background. It's like, okay, you know, so somebody who's, who, and I, I'd been an entrepreneur before. And so I checked some of those boxes. Um, so I think you just got to figure out which boxes you check and make sure that you bring in team members to, to, to fill in those gaps so you can have that, that credible, that credible, credible first pitch and, and that credible first dollar. Cause the first dollar is the hardest, you know, the first million is the hardest. <laughs> so yep, yep. it's uh, you know, it's just always an uphill climb. 
Yeah, you talk to any yeah, investor, to the, any the investor, first three, three boxes of the five to check are team, 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 and team. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. And in my case, like I, I came to, you know, my, I really, other than just general entrepreneur and business experience, I really had no cannabis specific experience mm-hmm. for getting into this business. And so I, I've really gotten a, a very wide kind of, um, you know, uh, kind of jack. You know, I have I've been exposed to so much, so many aspects of this business. I've been able to build build up a lot of knowledge over the last uh, four or five years. But initially, all I had was time. I just I was um, I knew I wanted to get into the business, and I knew I was early, and so I just had the urgency of learning as much as possible and building a team as fast as possible when I had. What, what amounted to a head start and that I was, you know, looking at draft regulations when the average kind of wannabe cannabis entrepreneur in Canada wasn't. And so, you know, that six month head start is, is, is pretty, is pretty big. Um, but there was, um, especially in this environment. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's it. And that was, you know, four or four or five years ago. So it's, um, that's really what allowed me to kind of get that, you know, get through that first kind of uh, chasm, uh, if you will. Yeah, well, clearly you've learned a ton about the industry. Super informative for uh, myself as well as our audience. I'll, I'll get you out of here on on one more, sort of a, a little bit more of a personal question. You do so many things. I mean, we just talked about all these companies. Uh, you know, how do you manage your time? I think that's one thing that that founders and investors, honestly, that listen to the show would be curious. I mean, you know, how, how do you get it all done? Time management that, you know, any tricks there? Yeah, I think um, when you get a certain spot, I mean, I, I uh, hired a, a very, um, a very senior EA uh, executive assistant uh, uh, late last year, so that certainly helps. I mean, it's it's just about delegating as much of the um, non-core functions that you that you can, and and an extension of that is really building a great team around you. So you know, with everything I talked about, you know, my typical day is is you know eighty. 80 percent uh cannabis wheaton uh you know it's a very large public company we have a, yeah. a large team and we're executing and so really you know my day looks a lot simpler than, than what we talked about and then i have uh, a great team of partners at nesta uh, and very much um kind of an oversight role with the the investments and the other the other properties that we have so i think it's it's about um you know just making sure you have good corporate governance structures as as you scale and um and it, but that, you know if it was if i had to give just one piece of advice you know once you have some success more opportunities come to you and you you just have to learn to say no to a lot of things but the the volume of 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 asks that come at you increase exponentially so you know the lesson i've learned over the last two years is is to say no to even more and so i, I actually gone back and had to kind of renegotiate commitments and just say you know i really don't have time for this and and uh i um and to, to stay on top of that i kind of look at every month i kind of look at my schedule look at the the flow of volume and you know how much of my time is spent you know doing high value work versus not and if i feel that that ratio is not quite right then i i just look to cut things out Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. No, yeah. no, no one to, no say, no. to say no. Yeah, but it's hard. It's hard. It's uh, you know, when you uh, every opportunity looks interesting, and and sometimes there's some nuggets there, but you just need to build very quick filters, whatever those are, to make sure you you get to know fast on on most of everything. And when you say yes to something, make sure you have the time to go all in. Got it. Well said. Well, I think that's a pretty good place to wrap up here, Chuck. Thanks so much for being on the program. Really enjoyed it. Great. Well, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here, and uh, I look forward to chatting again. Awesome, guys. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.